Y'all turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38, we're going to continue in our series on the life of Joseph, although God in his wisdom veers away from Joseph in this chapter. This is one of those chapters that uh, if you know the Bible, if you've read this before, you probably think uh, you can't really preach a sermon on this chapter. Well, we're going to see, all right? Um, Some of you are familiar with the author Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, Some of you aren't, but he's written a lot of very well-received, well-known books. He's got a podcast now that he puts out about once a month, and I was listening to one recently, and an episode was called The Big Man Can't Shoot, so it's about basketball. Now, if you're not into basketball or sports, don't worry, that's not going to be the subject of the sermon, but for just the next few minutes, I'm going to start with that. See, this, this story was about a guy named Wilt Chamberlain. Some of you know his name. Uh, back in the 60s, he was the most dominant player in basketball and probably the best athlete on earth at the time. He was seven foot one inches tall. I don't know what that's like, um, but not only was he a big, big man, but unlike most big, big men, he was actually very graceful. He had a, a lot of athletic ability. He was dominant on the court. He could literally jump from the free throw line and dunk the ball. I mean, this is how agile he was. Um, at one point in 1962, he actually scored 100 points in a single game. It's the only person who's ever done that in the professional basketball league, and, and no one else has even come close. He had one flaw in his game, Wilt Chamberlain did, and that was he could not shoot free throws. For his career, he shot around 50% from the free throw line, which is terrible. Basically, he was giving up points. Uh, Not only that, but in a close game, when it got late into the game, he cost his team because the other team just would foul him on purpose, knowing that he would make one out of two and they could catch up. He was a liability to his team with his free throw shooting. Now, one year, one year, Wilt Chamberlain actually shot well from the free throw line. That was in 1962 when he changed his strategy entirely. In 1962, he shot underhanded from the free throw line. Down like this, two hands. And he actually was a good free throw shooter that year. In fact, that was the year he scored 100 points in a game. 28 of those points were free throws. Now, there was a guy around the same time who was well known for shooting that way. Does anybody know who that was? Well, it was Rick Barry. Anybody remember Rick Barry? Rick Barry was well known for shooting underhanded from the free throw line. He's one of the best free throw shooters in the history of basketball. He shot over 90%, which is excellent. Uh, Barry says that it's only natural that that's a better way to shoot because no one walks around like this naturally. We all walk around with our hands at our sides. And so it just makes sense that it would be more natural for us to shoot underhanded. In spite of that, And in spite of how well Wilt Chamberlain did, after 1962, he went back to his old way of shooting, and his average went back down again. And for the rest of his career, he shot from his shoulder and made about 50%. In fact, one year, he only shot 38%. In his autobiography, he explained why. He said, I know it was wrong. I know I could have done better if I shot underhanded. I just felt ridiculous shooting that way. He said, I thought it made me look like a sissy. In fact, most basketball fans and players have a name for that kind of shooting. You know what it is? Anybody know? It's the granny shot, that's right, because that's how your granny would shoot if she was on a basketball court. Now, Rick Barry says he felt ridiculous too when he first started. He was, he was a high school player, and his dad, who was also a basketball coach, came to him and said, son, I think you could shoot better if you shot free throws underhanded. He said, dad, they'd make fun of me. And his dad said, would you rather win and not be made fun of or take a little ridicule and win more? 
And for Rick Barry, winning was more important than how he looked. Now, Gladwell did some research, and he discovered that down through history, not many players have shot underhanded. You remember Shaquille O'Neal, right? He was, like Wilt Chamberlain, a big, dominant player who shot terrible from the free throw line. People told him, you ought to shoot underhanded. He said, I'd rather shoot 0% than look that ridiculous. Today, Gladwell did some research. He found that, there, that in, in, the, in professional basketball, no one shoots underhanded, not a soul. In all of college basketball, tens of thousands of people, men and women across all these different levels of college basketball, you know how many people shoot underhand? Two. And one of them is Canyon Berry, Rick Berry's son. Now, why do I tell you that story? I, I really don't care whether you shoot free throws well or not, okay? My point in telling you this is that by human nature, we do the wrong thing even when we know it's wrong. We keep on doing the wrong thing, even though it produces bad results. We do the wrong thing thinking sooner or later the results are going to change, which is the definition of insanity, right? And that's why the Bible calls us fools. That's why the Bible says we are sinners. We are ridiculous. We do the wrong thing even though we know it's wrong. We do the wrong thing even though we know it doesn't work. The question I want to answer today is, what does God do with us in our foolishness? What does God do when we continue doing the wrong thing? See, the name of our series is, Where is God? Because what we believe about God, our theology, I say is the most important thing about us. What you believe about God and whether or not it's true is more important than what you believe about anything else. And it determines how you're going to live and it determines where you're going to spend eternity. So it is vitally important that you know the truth about God, not just what you've heard, not just what your parents said, not just what you've reasoned out in your mind, but what the scriptures, what God's own word actually says about him. And we're looking at the story of a man named Joseph. Now, let me give you a quick recap. Last week, we looked at how Joseph was one of 12 sons of a guy named Jacob, and Joseph was his daddy's favorite. Joseph got from his dad the amazing Technicolor dream coat while his brothers just had Dickie's overalls, right? And his brothers hated him, and they decided one day to kill him. And then one of the brothers stood up, his name was Judah, and said, I've got an idea. Let's not kill him. Let's get rid of our brother and make a profit at the same time. See, two good things instead of one. And so they sold their brother into slavery. That was Judah's idea. Judah sold his own brother and then lied to his father about it. They took goat's blood and splashed it on that coat of many colors. They gave it to their dad, let him assume that his his son had been mauled by a tiger or a lion or a bear. Oh my. But uh, they left their father brokenhearted and bereft. And then Judah goes on. Chapter 38 is a little more of his story. And you see how much time is passing. Verse 1, chapter 38, verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kiza that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him 
to death. Now, I need to say a couple of things before we go on with our story. Number one, I should have said this at the beginning, this is a story that is rather shocking, okay? This is a story that if they made a movie about it, it would be rated R. This is a story that if you're not familiar with the scriptures, you'll be surprised that God put this kind of stuff in his word. This shows you how honest God is. He shows us the flaws and all, okay? If you've got young children, don't worry, we're not going to dwell in the details, but I want you to know that ahead of time. Second thing I want you to see is God is very honest about the people who served him. Judah will go on to be a great hero, but here we see him as a wicked person. He's already sold his brother. He's already lied to his dad. Now we see him marrying a Canaanite woman. Now please understand why that's a big deal. The Canaanites were the people who dwelt in the land where Jacob lived and his sons. Uh, the Canaanites were a barbaric people. They were, uh, they were pagans who worshipped a god who was cruel, who was barbaric, who demanded things like uh, infant sacrifice. People would sacrifice their own children to this god, ritual prostitution. These people were so evil that 400 years later, when God's people came into the promised land, God said, don't just defeat them, wipe them out. They deserve my judgment, okay? That gives a lot of people trouble today, but God is God and he knows these were evil people. Judah's father and grandfather had both gone to great lengths not to marry any of the neighborhood girls because they worshiped this this evil God. Instead, they had gone long distances to, to find a girl who worshiped the God of Israel, Yahweh. And that was God's will. That was, that was Jacob's plan for his children. And so Judah broke his dad's heart when he married one of these pagan women. Now, another detail you need to see in what we've already read is Judah's firstborn son, Ur, got married and God killed him. Remember, we said last week, sometimes punishment, sometimes suffering is a punishment of God for our wickedness. It is not surprising that a man like Judah who was cold-hearted and a Canaanite woman would produce a son who was so evil, God would say, I'm going to wipe him out. He, he doesn't deserve to live. But here's the point. When that happened in that culture, the custom said that it was the father-in-law's job to get a bride for his son's widow. If the son had not produced an heir, then that young woman had no one to take care of her, no one to provide for her. And so the father's job, Judah's job was to make sure she had someone. And usually that was the next brother in line. And we look at that and say, well, that seems rather odd to us. And yet that was God's way of taking care of widowed women. So Judah did his part. He gave his next-born son, Onan, to this young woman, Tamar. Well, he died too. Judah had one more son, Shelah, and Judah said, well, this girl's bad luck. I'm not going to give her to him. But he didn't tell her that. He said, just wait. He's not old enough. I'll give him to you in time. But he never did. Eventually, Tamar realized he's not going to do his part. He's not going to take care of me. And this was a concept called leveret marriage. It was something God approved of in that time. And people who would not provide for a widowed woman were seen as despicable. So again, we see Judah do the wrong thing. Now let's go to verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep and his friend Hira the Adulamite with him. Now remember, I told you this is kind of a shocking story, right? Okay. Verse 13. 
When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll give you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you can recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shalah. And he did not sleep with her again. <clears throat> now, let me say... The point of this story is not that what Tamar did was right. That's not what the story is saying. It's not, it's not saying prostitution is good. It's not saying that uh, sex outside of marriage is permissible in certain circumstances. That's not what this story is saying. Always interpret Scripture by Scripture. God does not make exceptions to his commands. The point of this story is that Judah did what was wicked, and God found a way to expose him. God found a way to expose him. Okay, now the before you before you um, condemn Tamar too much. Remember, she was without recourse. She had no way of earning a living. She had no way of providing for herself, especially when she got to be an older woman. And so she did what she thought she had to do, although it was sinful, although it was wrong. On the other hand, Judah held all the cards. He was a man in a society where men had a dominant place. He could have done anything he wanted to. And in fact, notice how shrewd this young woman is. She waits until the last possible moment to make it known what has happened. And she doesn't point the finger at her father-in-law. Instead, she says, whose credit card is this? Whose, uh, whose social security card is this? Whose, whose driver's license is this? Whose DNA is this? Basically, she was giving the ancient equivalent of that. Congratulations. Judah, you are the father. And to his credit, this cold-hearted man who would sell out his brother, who would, who would lie to his father, who would marry a woman who worshipped an evil, barbaric God, who would, who would refuse to take care of his daughter-in-law, to his credit, all of a sudden he changes. This is a man who, in that culture, in that time, when this happened, he could have gone straight over to her house and, and strangled her with his own two hands. He could have stood up and said, listen, she tricked me. I'm the victim here. Everyone would have been on his side. 
But Judah does the first noble thing of his life. He says, I was wrong. I should have taken care of her. Don't punish her. Don't punish her. I admit it was me. I am the sinner here. He saves her life. Now, what can account for this radical change? Five minutes before, he was willing to put her to death. In fact, not just put her to death, but have her burned. In those days, stoning was how you executed people. He wanted her burned. Here was a a man who was evil on the inside but wanted to be moral policeman on the outside. Does that sound familiar? And now, all of a sudden, he does a 180 and has changed. Now, all of a sudden, he is standing up for what is right. Now he is standing up for the marginalized. What accounts for that? Only one thing, and this is the point of the message. There is a God in the world whose full-time occupation is the transformation of human beings. That's the point of this story. The God we believe in, the God of the Bible, the one true God, what he does full-time, what he cares about more than anything else, what he is about is changing human beings, men, women, and children, from what they were into what he created them to be. That's what we call salvation. That's what God is about. That's what he does. And it's all through the Scriptures, not just the New Testament, but also the Old. Think about the first story in the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve. Eve commits the first sin in humankind. Because of that first sin, uh, the curse comes into the world. And she doesn't even have a name at that point. She's just woman. God gives her a name. After that, through Adam, he gives her the name Eve, which means mother of the living. He gives her a redemptive name. You're not the first sinner. You're the first mother. Think about Abram. Abram is a man in his later years who doesn't have children yet and feels disgraced because of it. God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many. Think about Judah's own father, Jacob. The name Jacob actually means trickster, means con man. I'm sorry if you have kids named Jacob or if your name is Jacob. It's a great name. It's been redeemed, but that was the original meaning of it. It means someone who trips other people up. God gave him a new name after he met him at Peniel and they had a little wrestling match. He gave him the name Israel, the God wrestler, the guy who's not afraid to contend with me. And all through the Bible we see it. We see Moses, this 80-year-old man with a murder rap who becomes a courageous hero, a deliverer who stands in the face of the most powerful man on earth and says, let my people go. He takes Deborah, an ordinary housewife, and turns her into a warrior and a prophetess. He takes He takes a shepherd boy and turns him into Israel's greatest king. He takes a virgin girl and makes her the mother of the Messiah. He takes a demon-possessed woman and makes her the first eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He takes a loudmouth fisherman and turns him into the, the leader of the greatest movement in human history. He takes a terrorist who hated Christians and turns him into Christianity's greatest missionary. That's what he does. A few years ago, it became popular in in larger churches to to have what they called cardboard testimonies. Perhaps you've seen this. Perhaps you've been a part of this or or seen it online. I've I've watched several videos of this, and the way it goes is they'll they'll play a song, and, and members will walk out one by one with a piece of cardboard in their hand, and on one side of the cardboard will be a a one-sentence testimony of who they were, and then they'll flip it over. On the other side, it will say who they are now because of God's grace. And so, for instance, a woman will come out and hold up a sign that says, addicted to meth, 
and she'll flip it over and it says, set free by the power of God. Uh, a big intimidating guy comes out and holds up his sign and it says, thought Christian men were weak, now I am one. One woman came out and her sign simply said, lukewarm, and she flipped it over and it said, on fire. And, and it makes, makes me think, what would my sign say? What would your sign say? Think about it. If you had to give a testimony of what God has done in your life and you, could, you had to put it in one sentence on one sheet of paper, what would it say? What would it say? That's your assignment. Before today's over, come up with your cardboard testimony, your one-sentence testimony, and share it with at least one other person. And i got to tell you, that's not an easy thing to do, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, especially if you got saved at a young age. I was nine when I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. My parents and grandparents were all Christians. I'd been in church basically every time the doors were open all of my life. I did not have one of those dramatic testimonies at nine years old. Believe it or not, I hadn't fathered any illegitimate children. I hadn't been in a street gang. I hadn't killed anybody. You wouldn't make a movie out of my testimony. And so for people like us, what we have to ask is not just how did I get saved, but how has God changed me since I came into his family? What difference has Christ made in my life? And as I thought about it and, and, and prayed about it, I came up with two different ideas for my own testimony, just as a word from me. <clears throat> On one hand, I could hold up a sign that would say, I used to want to make a name for myself. Now I want to make his name famous. Another one I could do, I could, I could hold up a sign that would say, typical self-centered male now learning to love others. Both of those things are true. But if you notice the way I worded those, both of those things are still works in progress. God's not through. I'm not through being changed. And in fact, there's a lot of other areas God still has to work in my life. And if you ask me 10 years from now, I may have a totally different cardboard testimony. I, I may have something else that God has delivered me from at that point. And that's part of the point. What is God doing in your life? Again, think of it. What would you say is your one-sentence testimony, your cardboard testimony? Share it with one other person. And when you share it with that person, if they know you well enough, they better be able to say, yeah, I can see that. Because if they can't, then that means you're fooling yourself. If God really has changed you, it is evident to others. And one more thing before we get back to Judah's life. Notice how God changed Judah. He didn't send him an engraved invitation from heaven that said, come talk to me and I'll show you how to have your best life now. He didn't say that. No, instead, he confronted Judah's sin. He embarrassed him publicly. He brought pain and shame into his life for a purpose. See, sometimes when we won't confront our own sin, God has to do it for us and it's painful. And God loves his children enough that like any other good parent, he would rather see his children suffer in the short term so they can experience redemption in the long term. And I think the message for each of us is confront your sin now so God doesn't have to do it for you. Come to him now and be honest about where you're struggling, the wrong things that you do now so he doesn't have to discipline you. He doesn't have to force you to confront your sin. Where is God when we fail? He is there. 
He is with us, and he is working to transform us. Where is God when we're shooting free throws overhand, when we don't have any business doing that? He's doing what he has to do to show us a different way. He's giving us the power to change, and he's giving us the mercy and the grace to be forgiven. Now, how do we know that Judah really had changed? I mean, after all, somebody could say, hey, maybe Judah just decided not to execute his daughter-in-law because he realized, well, she's carrying my own children and I want them to survive. Yes, notice I said children. They were twin boys, as you find out if you read the rest of chapter 38. Maybe, maybe this was just preservation of his family line, right? No, not exactly. I'm going to jump ahead in the story. I'm going to spoil the whole story. It's okay. It's still going to be a good story. Chapter 44, we find out that Joseph, the brother who's been sold into slavery, is now the prime minister of Egypt. And in the coming weeks, we'll find out how that happened. Joseph is now prime minister of Egypt. Meanwhile, a famine has hit the the ancient Near East. The people of God, Judah and his brothers and his dad, are starving. And Jacob, Judah's dad, says to his boys, y'all go to Egypt You didn't know they said y'all back then, but they did. Y'all go to Egypt and get food. He sends all of his sons except one. The only son that didn't go was Benjamin. Why didn't Benjamin go? Because now that Joseph is presumed dead, Benjamin is now his daddy's new favorite. Benjamin stays home. The other brothers go. The ten brothers go. And Judah goes to the to the land of Egypt and stands in front of a man he doesn't know is his long-lost brother Joseph and says, please give us food. And Joseph recognizes his brothers and wants to punish them. And so he says, I won't give you any food until you bring your little brother back with you. And they go back home and they fetch Benjamin and they bring him back. And there's a long series of circumstances we'll talk about later. But Joseph has Benjamin arrested. And he says, I'm going to hold your brother. The rest of you can go home with your grain. Everything's fine. I'm going to keep your brother forever for what he has done. And Judah, once again, has a chance to get rid of daddy's favorite, once again has a chance to put himself first. But Judah's heart has changed. And he steps in front of all of his brothers and he says, please, sir, let my brother go. Take me instead. Arrest me. I know, I know he's the one you think has done this evil thing, but, but treat me like I'm the one that did the evil thing. Put the punishment on me. I can't do this to my father again. I can't do this to my brother again. Take me instead. And not only does Joseph release Benjamin, but his heart is broken and his his anger towards his brothers is healed and there's reconciliation in that family and a whole generation is saved and a whole family is reconciled. Why? Because Judah's heart got changed. And Judah, if he were writing a cardboard testimony, could write down, cold-hearted hypocrite, only looked out for myself. Now I'm a man of God who puts others first. And the best part of the story is if you go on and read on into the Scriptures, you find out that many, many centuries later, a descendant, a direct descendant of Judah took that philosophy to its ultimate extent. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, took our punishment, took our pain, took our shame, died so we wouldn't have to, died so we could go free. And here's what I want you to understand. 
when you keep on doing the wrong thing, even though you know it's wrong, the only way to solve that dilemma is through Him. When you come to Him in all honesty and you say, Lord Jesus, only you can change me. I've tried real hard. Trying real hard doesn't work. I've done all kinds of techniques. It doesn't help. I need for you to change me. I am a sinner. Please rescue me. Send your grace to forgive me. Send your power to change me. Send the power of your your Holy Spirit into your church so, so I'll have mentors in that church who will guide me to the truth and help me along the way. Give me the help and the strength I need because I want to live the life you've called me to live because that's where the joy is. That's where the freedom is. Only he can transform us. And if he, if Jesus held up a sign, what would it say? It would say, son of a carpenter, born of a virgin, crucified, resurrected Savior of the world. We can come to him and only him for transformation.